The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hello, I am Pat Ellington Jr., the host and producer of the Red Black Green Baseball Podcast, which is a part of Picture List Podcast Network. The feature guest of episode 2 is Shakia Taylor, a writer that focuses on baseball as it intersects with black history and black culture. She has written for reputed publications such as Baseball Perspectives and Fangraphs, amongst many others. She has also received awards for stories from the Society for American Baseball Research and the Associated Press. Thank you for listening. I was born in Maryland. Lived in a couple of states over off the Atlantic, and then we moved to Ohio in the early 90s. Grew up in Youngstown, and that's really where I would say my relationship with baseball kind of started in Youngstown. Most kids or young boys uh, growing up with me played football, but there was a small contingent of Black guys who stuck with it for a little bit longer stuck with baseball for a little bit longer than, you know, a few years as a kid. And in high school, I would actually go to high school baseball games and (laughs) and cheer on the one black kid on like whatever team I was watching with my girlfriends. At that age, I didn't separate like liking the sport from liking the boys. So it was definitely like a two-way thing. Like I enjoy this sport, but the boys are kind of cute. So I'm going to keep going, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm a lot of women like to kind of separate, you know, like I'm a fan and I don't, but no, I'm a fan, but I'm also a woman who likes guys. So like, guys had a definitely like heavy role in me initially getting into the sport. But from there it's, it was all me. And I don't think my parents realized that I would be as into sports as I became, like at all. <laughs> um, Were they like concerned about you being a tomboy because of it? Not no, actually, like I. So I I wear dresses like in the summer exclusively. I don't mm-hmm. like shorts, so they really weren't concerned with the tomboy thing. I ran track. I pre- I played a little basketball. I was a amazing passer, okay? Just let's put that out there for anyone <laughs> listening, you know? <laughs> go and get, um, go and get a 10-day contract with the Bulls or something. Okay. See, I probably would be making the water on the bench nowadays. But growing up, I think my parents were like, she likes sports. Let's just kind of see where it goes, you know? Mm-hmm. So they encouraged or I should say paid for me to go to sporting events whenever I asked. I think my dad was into it. Having I'm the oldest, so having a daughter who is like, I want to go to 
you know, the baseball game, the basketball game, the hockey, whatever. So I think my dad was cool with it, but my mom. So there was this one time I was, I was grown, like grown, grown. And I went home to visit. It was like 2012, 2013. And I went home to visit around Memorial Day. And I was watching uh, a sporting event on TV. And my mom came in and was like, we don't, we don't watch that here. And I'm like, but I'm the only person in the house. I'm the only person in the living room. Like, and I think for her, it was always like, why is my girl so invested in a game? Like, and I think that was like our one point of contention. Never was I going to be a tomboy or anything, but it was always like, go do something. Like this girl is always reading or watching a freaking game. So I think now that I'm actually like doing it, they probably see then that it was like meant to be. <laughs> I, I feel like with us creatives, especially in black households, they don't kind of get how those moments then help us down the path of just ingesting the content and, and be on your own. And, and at any age is, is, is a big deal for us in the process of mm-hmm. getting to that point where you produce the content. And that's in any medium, in my opinion. So, you know, favorite team growing up, favorite players? Um, My favorite baseball team growing up was the Cleveland baseball team. (laughs) My favorite player on the team, this is so funny. So I was in this group of kids that we were competing in a competition called Odyssey of the Mind. I do not know if Odyssey of the Mind still exists, but we got a theme and we got to like create a story and I think ours had something to do with like triumph and tragedy, but you got a bunch of kids. The group is primarily black. We're from Youngstown and David Justice was playing for Cleveland and he walked out to he, his walk-up song. Do you remember? It was hypnotized by Notorious yeah, Big. Yeah. So we used that song as like our like team like hype song. It's the nineties. Cleveland baseball team is hot. Like there was and they got a, guy, a whole bunch of black players. I mean Right, right. That, and there was, a, that, there that was a there's a guy on our team who wore a number seven gold chain because he was a big Kenny Lofton fan. Like so that was it for me. Nineties Cleveland baseball, you had rap music, you got gold chains. I still love all those things obviously, but like that's what hooked me. And that's black baseball culture in itself. And that's that's what it was then. And, and that was a culmination of, I mean, and, and and that's what hooks people like me and you to teams and how we build relationships. You know, I have a story about my mom making me um, write a book report about Satchel Page when I was in third grade because I got in trouble in school and, and how that really helped me build a bond with the team and in itself because and that helped me build a bond with my history. And it, and it all intersects so much, especially with, with baseball. So I want, I want to talk about your writing and, and how, how you got into writing. When did you know you wanted to be a writer um, and everything like that? I've always written. I've always, like, if you go back to, like, even when I was a little girl, I wrote all the time. I wrote in my photo albums. I didn't keep a journal because my mom wasn't big on, like, privacy if you were a kid. So, but I wrote. I wrote things like, I wrote my own origin story. I've said this a ton. <laughs> You would think that I thought I was a superhero. Like, 
wrote my own origin story. You know, there's thunder and lightning and I was born. And it was just like this, I've always been a very, you know, creative person when it came to writing. And I took creative writing in high school and I really, like, I really dug it. It was, writing has always been my favorite form of expression next to music. And I read a lot. So reading a lot kind of merged into writing a lot. And in 2016, I lost my job and it was a blessing in disguise. Like I never ever considered writing as a career until that point. And my dad had been telling me for years that sports journalism, sports media, that's what I was supposed to do. That's what I should be doing. And I'm like, yeah, but it's not practical. And I think I kind of got caught up in the idea that I needed a regular, respectable job that I was sure that I was going to make money from every day because sports is so up and down and media jobs kind of come and go. And, you know, newspapers are fledgling, unfortunately. And so I lost my job and I had started a baseball blog. Like, well, I'm probably not going to get a job right away because that very rarely happens. You usually spend a couple of months looking at least. Well, and it was summer in Chicago, and I'm not going to take a f- free summer <laughs> for granted. So I, I started a blog, and I started going to games, you know, with my little side hustle money, you know, money I made on unemployment. And I started going to games and, like, blogging about my experiences. I once had a thread on Twitter about, like, just kind of, like, casual baseball game etiquette. Like if you order a beer, you don't have to get up and walk down the road to get it. Someone will pass it to you. Pass your ID, pass your cash, we'll pass it back. Like I can't recall a person ever losing an ID at a game that way, but it picked up and people became interested. And an editor who was then at Fangraphs, he now runs a bookstore, which is kind of like goals. Shout out to Paul. Um, DM'd me. We love bookstores. <laughs> DM'd me on Twitter and it's like, hey, have you ever thought about like writing as a thing, like getting paid for it? And admittedly, I was like, uh, mm, let's see how it goes. Even and writers then, are skeptical. Like, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, I kind of have, I kind of have like a survivor's guilt ever since over this past year. And I'm sure you kind of noticed it a bit. Just being around people who consider me their peer, who's been in the industry a lot longer and who've done a lot more, and it, and I, I kind of feel like we're getting further, and and I kind of feel like I'm overlapping them or taking their chances, even though I haven't done as much or things like that. And it's that's just that's just kind of how com- complicated it is to be a writer, and that's just kind of one. There's just so many facets of writing that many people just don't look at. In, in the world and, and how we navigate it and whether it's in the industry or outside of it, no matter what I, the medium is. I think I deal with that a little bit as well, particularly as a black woman. I'm kind mm-hmm. of in a sea by myself. You know, Claire Smith retired. You have Kennedy Landry, who, you know, writes for MLB.com, who, you know, she's she's, you know, newer, I would say, than I am. And in just the last few years, It was kind of just me on an island hanging out. And I'm super appreciative to all of the more established people and even people who weren't maybe where they wanted to be, who reached out, lent a hand, share emails with me, share player, you know, contacts with me. And 
I'm, I'm really starting to deal with that now where I feel like I'm kind of moving up and getting more visible and more popular. And the people who may have reached out to help me aren't doing those things or getting that kind of like accolades. And I still am in touch with them and I still, you know, want to be friends. And for me, I think my goal is about building the community. It's not about taking any credit for myself. Like, yeah, credit for myself is dope, but you never want to be the person who doesn't bring people with you. Especially for us, because you just gonna you're just gonna be lonely and you're gonna look you're gonna look Yeah. Um Lawrence Holmes, who's kind of, he's a friend first, but he's definitely a mentor too. Mm-hmm. Um, Shout out Lawrence, by the way. He's, he's really <laughs> dope. He, he, he definitely bounces through with the, with the Twitter gyms every now and then when you yeah. need him. So he's he really cool. He has this saying, and it's lift as you climb. And you can look at his career and you can see all of the people, but specifically the black people that he brought up that interned for him that now his career is on TV. his new year's thread his new year's thread i saw it and it was so long and you know especially in chicago was with just how visible sports media market is there and what he's doing and just how intentional he is about it and um such you guys like what, what russ is doing and, and everything like that too and shout out to russ dorsey by the way and yeah and just the lift as you climb thing is perfect because i remember both of you saying that at certain points to me so yeah, we're all a part of that, like, Lawrence Holmes family tree. Me, mm. Russ, Tony Gill, Herb Lawrence. Like, it's been incredible. And I just want to pay that forward in baseball. I want, I mean, obviously, I want to bring as many people from whatever background as possible. But the soul of everything I do puts Black people first because Blackness is my default. So, right. you know, getting you connected with people I know, like it might not be much, but it's, you know, I feel like whatever we can do to bring other black people to the sport, to raise awareness, to kind of, you know, point out things even is, it's a step ahead. Definitely. We gotta, we definitely gotta make sure we protect and, and our and remain intentional about protecting and um, building, rebuilding the baseball as black subculture because black American subculture, I mean, I should say, because nobody could question the strength of the Afro-Latino subculture or the Afro-Caribbean subculture with what the Bahamian guys are doing right now. So it's weird because there's, there's some, there's a bit of a contention, but it's not just because we're close and proximity to Americanness and it's, it's more noticeable and they have to take notice. It is not, and they can't spend uh Oh, well, well, look what baseball American baseball is doing for foreign people in America and just spin it that way. And, and and it's really interesting, but it's also people who recognize the black American subcultures necessity to the sports history and to the entire culture of the sport itself and the globalization of the sport. So it's, it's really interesting to see that kind of like that pendulum swing as, as, as things unfold. I think when you talk about blackness, as far as the diaspora, when it comes to baseball, it's Mm -hmm. a labor thing too, right? Like it's not just a social or cultural thing. It's a labor thing. And it's political. And, And, you know, and it's very, it's disheartening 
you know, to have to discuss it, but it is there. It is there. It is mm. true. We have seen in real time Afro-Latino players be completely lowballed in their contracts. Like we watched it happen with the Braves. <laughs> like And like, it's not even just that. With guys like Esteban Florial and Miguel Sano, when you add them being Haitian into the fact and to historical context of the Haitian fight against colonialism and things like that and and the repercussions of how um, Haitian Dominican players and what they go through in Dominican when they try to get into the try to when they're trying to get signed and things like that and and how that affects them. It's, it's just so many different intersections and, and layers and ripple effects, and it's just Absolutely. and it's just so it's just so embedded, and it just reminds me of that thing about that that quote from your story about black managers about baseball being one of the last bastions for for white for white men in the sport, and it's true. I mean, base. <laughs> Baseball is is so overt in in a sense that it just goes on and just completely unquestioned, like the status quo. It's it's like it's clothed in tradition, Mm -hmm. right? Like we use that word in baseball circles a lot, like tradition, nostalgia. I'm romantic about baseball. No, what you are doing is you are looking at white supremacy from a rose-colored perspective. Like, if things don't change, then we just continue to just bring the very same problems forward as we are doing currently for centuries. And and the problems just become new. And they, and they start to get a little funky. And you have people like us who talk about it. And there's people who push back against us. Like, you know, I don't see race. Well, buddy, that's a problem. That is a problem. Like that is not the like flex that you think it is. Well, one, you're and- lying. So I mean. <laughs> absolutely. But it's like we pointing out these issues is, is it has for so long been seen as divisive when it's like, how can we even come together if we don't solve these things that are sitting right there? That are well, of course, right of well, of course, the action of discussing can be divisive when the original thing that's affecting the circumstance in itself is divisive. And I mean, it, it, it's, it's weird. It's like when it, it's like someone that it's like you're in an emergency room and one person has been shot and another person got a broken pinky and you're trying to solve the issue of the person who's been shot and the person with a broken pinky is tr- trying to raise hell. I mean, that's, that's kind of what it feels like to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's 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 an ongoing thing. But mm-hmm. I think with my writing, I try to focus on the general as far as like blackness. Like yes, right. I'm black American and I'm gonna let you know, you know, and I'm gonna defend. Like look at how hard I went for Tim Anderson being suspended. And I it's stuff And like what that. he got suspended for and the cultural thing with that and itself and <laughs> I think for so long that kind of context has been lacking. Like we have a lot of great black people associated with this sport, but we can't be the ones who are silencing ourselves. We no, can't we gotta we gotta really explain things so that way sooner or later they'll become um, well. We know they're okay. We just gotta yeah. make them okay, mm-hmm. um, and we gotta remind people that they're okay, and that's how we do. And that and that's the same thing you kind of got to do with with the things that are wrong with the sport. People kind of get used to it, like the. With the commentary, it's like that. I, I get, I try and get mad about it and frustrated when you know, like when broadcasters do like the forty acres and the mule thing, or whatnot, just because 
it's so normalized in the sport and, and it makes me feel like it makes me feel like a traitor in a sense just for for liking the sport sometimes i'll, I'll be feeling backwards and i'll be fe- i feel conflicted approach. i take a two-sided approach mm-hmm. one i kind of acknowledge that there is a certain segment of the population who doesn't have to learn about anybody right. they don't have to learn about us because unfortunately that's just how the world is that's how the world is and so I think if they knew that I basically view them as as uneducated and ignorant, maybe they would view it differently. But that's all that is. That is mm-hmm. just an inability to take a moment to learn. That is an inability to understand that things that may have been acceptable before are not acceptable now. And we spent a whole year, a whole year, 2020 was the year of listening and learning. I'm listening, I'm learning, I'm reading my anti-racism text. Okay, but in 2021, we're back. We're back to the exact same things. And in 2022, I know the year just started, but I mean, we don't know what the year is gonna hold, but history has shown us that history does not learn from history. Like we just kind of take a pause and keep going. and. Luckily, we are in the time and in the generation of people who are like, absolutely not. We are going to figure this out. We are going Mm -hmm. to solve this. And look, like most baseball fans, I am absolutely hopeful that, you know, in 5, 10, 15 years, I won't be having this conversation with you. That we'll be having a different conversation. But I'm also Black in America. And we know we're going to be having these conversations <laughs> 15 years from now. Yes. Yeah. So the goal and we'll is now be to referencing do- this conversation. So, yep. Yep. And I think the goal for me long term is to just keep pushing the stories out, keep talking about like I write about things and there are literally people who have been connected to this sport their whole lives who don't know. I wrote about Pumpsy Green, right? The last of the first. That was what the story was titled. Great, great title. Shout out to Craig Goldstein for that. But like, People were hitting me up like, I had no idea that it took the Red Sox so long to integrate. Right. Because you don't view it as your history. You view it as a separate history as opposed to it all being connected. Yeah. like I, I never knew who F.M. Malley was until I, until I read about um, her from you when I started delving into your stuff. Yeah. And, and that's the thing, too. It it allows... I know for me, when I started writing about Black wrestling players, I for me, in the back of my mind, I was like, okay, even if it doesn't stick now, I know some little black kid now, whether further down the line, whatever, is going to fall down the rabbit hole just like I did, and he's going to fall in love with the sport. And that's really all I want at this point, and that's that's kind of why I have you here with this. It's all just trying to just paint the conversation picture just for us at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. As far as youth, that's kind of been my my thing in the last couple of years. So I had an annual Jackie Robinson Foundation fundraiser. Mm. And of course, the way to bring people together, I know tons of people don't drink, but the way to bring people together is at a bar because people are social. So I would have it at a bar and I would work, believe it or not. I would get behind the bar with no experience. Uh, The bartenders would give me a crash course and I'd make drinks. I'd be slinging beers and I would donate all the tips Obviously, I'd pay, you know, tip the staff at the bar, but we would donate the tips. And I know someone who actually went to college because of the Jackie Robinson Foundation. So I know the impact. I know that it works. I know that that foundation is legitimately helping put our community through school. Mm -hmm. And And it's not just that. It's it's experiences that we have throughout (laughs) our life in, in 
you know, just those are the moments that we think about in the back of our heads when we think about these things, you know, and, you know, and building relationships, you know, like building a relationship with you, you know, just in, in itself, it, it kind of personifies what we're trying to do, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think like for people like us, it's important that we bring kids with us, right? Yeah, like absolutely. We, we got to take care of the babies. You have, you have to, I mean, each one teach, it's, it, it reflects our family structure and, and it being multi-generational and, and things like that. Um, you know, cousins, siblings, um, uncles, whatever, grandparents, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter what your age is, you know, and, and, you know, we can learn so much from kids as well. And that's why they should be around uh, too. It, it goes both ways for sure. No. And I think that's why they fall out of the sport. I think that's why they lose interest. Right. Because no one is there to say like, Hey, I am 20 years older than you, 15 years older than you, whatever. I and saw this in this. Yeah, I and, I still like it, and you there's there's space for you, there's room for you. Don't let people push you out. And you have a history in the sport. Yeah. Yep, that's the thing. Yep. Like, and, and that's one and that's one thing too. When when a lot of people might think about baseball, they don't think of our history with the sport and just how rich it is and, and how it it's it spanned continents. And that's the thing for me. And, and yeah, it's it's it's. It's revolu- it's caused us to be revolution. It's caused us to be revolutionary. It's inspired our revolutionaries. I mean, it- and our revolutionaries use it to inspire us. I mean, it's it's the history is there, and we just got to make sure people see it. Absolutely, and I think that's where we come in, right? As writers, like I definitely didn't intend to kind of stick into history, but I'm glad that I have because I've been able to have discussions with people that span you know, baseball over many years by just pulling things from the past and bringing it forward. Like, Mm -hmm. see how this thing affects how we're doing this thing now. One of my favorite baseball is activism stories. I wrote about it for MLB is Octavius Caddo. I don't know if you read that piece at all. If you haven't, check it out. But he quite literally used baseball as activism and he was killed trying to protect black people's right to vote well black men's right to vote at that time and i just found that to be just so bananas and how we don't hear about it like we hear about jackie robinson all the time and jackie robinson great great i am not discrediting anything jackie robinson did but jackie robinson wasn't the only and so i kind of think like with jackie robinson day Maybe we change the focus a little bit. Maybe we change it from, you know, everyone talking about everyone's wearing 42. Oh my God. But to a larger conversation. Randy Wilkins produced a, like, an ad type video, a short film for MOB for Jackie Robinson Day, the modified Jackie Robinson Day. And it was beautiful. Because it had all the black players. It had and all the it, black players, and then Mookie was kind of centered in it a little bit right after that happened. And so it was just it was it was perfect. It was perfect, but it also showed like the richness of blackness, like the intersections of blackness. Like we're not all you know straight black men and women, and there's a very prominent sign that kind of touched me that said, you know, like trans lives matter. And I'm like, come on, Randy, come with it, like. That is what I think people lose in looking at strictly our race. They lose the richness of our community and our culture. Like we are united. I see black people on the street and say, what's up? Cause that's mm. 
how we are. Yeah. That's who we are. And that's one thing that inspires my coverage too. You know, when you look at baseball's coverage of black people, it's mostly centered around black Americans. And historically, um, we've always included each other in each other's spaces, and especially in baseball, whether it be the Negro Leagues or the foreign leagues where black players from America went and played it in the winter when you can play nowhere in, in the Midwest or the East Coast or whatever. So, and and it also parallels the fact that the history of the diaspora is inextricably linked and also that, yeah, it, it just, it's, it's inevitable no matter what. At, at, at a certain point, we've always cooperated together and relied on each other and acknowledged each other and, and praised each other and upped each other. So, <laughs> so I'm just trying to make sure I keep that pressing as well. And when you have guys like a- Dr. Adrian Burgos and Bob Kendrick at Nuclear Mayfield Museum, they're doing it for historical context. Well, I feel like I, I can do it from a, a present context. For sure. Yeah. So so I wanted to talk to you about your big announcement with the Sabre event you have going on with and with the person you're interviewing, legendary HBCU baseball head coach. You know, that's a big deal for me as a former HBCU student. And that, that, would, that, made, me, that made me smile when I saw that. So can you kind of, kind of just talk about that and 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 everything got going on yeah so saber had this idea for a monthly virtual event because well we're kind of moving forward right like Mm -hmm. we're still in a pandemic and while a lot of people are doing things in person a lot of people aren't and i thought it was great that the folks at saber wanted to put on some sort of program so that people can still have the virtual option and there are tons of research committees. So I just looked at the list and started thinking of like, okay, what guests would kind of tie into each research research committee's theme? And so my first, you know, event is gonna be in February. And February is Black History Month. And baseball season does not happen during Black History Month. So I thought, what a what a great opportunity to talk about black college baseball. Roger Cato is obviously the guy if you want to talk about black college baseball. And I think with so much focus on Deion Sanders and players not going to power five schools and going to HBCUs and Chris Paul is at an HBCU and He's been doing that for Chris Paul's been doing HBC merch and all that for a good minute too, with the yeah. shoes and everything and all that. So and and what he wears and it's like no one in baseball is having that conversation. Like it's kind of like, uh, where are the black baseball players? They're in college. Like we we have to think about this. So I'm so excited to talk to Coach Kador. I already have people like tweeting me like, Coach Kador, save my life, Coach Kador, da-da-da-da. So I'm really excited to talk to him. Aside from our phone conversations that we've had, it's crazy when you get a text message and it's Roger Kador. Like I'm like, oh, I was watching Spider-Man <laughs> when he texted me to like say that he would do this. And it's just been very cool. He's accepting an award this weekend. So we'll get to talk about his, you know, coaches hall of fame induction. And I think he could give us some insight that we've never really talked about, like in a larger perspective, larger aspect. Cause I want to so he's been there so long too. Like yeah, he's been there when it was, when it was like from nothing to now, when it's starting mm-hmm. to be a little bit more momentum. Mm-hmm. And so it's really was in the Braves organization when Henry Aaron broke the record. So wow. 
I'm very interested in what he has to say about that, you know, like what he felt at that moment and what he saw. And that was when, you know, black baseball was really peaking or, or tor- towards this, going towards this peak in terms of presence in the sport itself. So I know yeah. that must have been huge, especially with the Braves, because they had so many black players in their farm system at that time period. Mm-hmm. Do you remember at one point the Braves were like black America's team? Like, mm-hmm. Because they had the, the outcasting going and everything too, too, <laughs> yep. and um, yeah, that that was a big thing. Yeah, it seems like there's like a a, a group, there's like a sector of teams that are historically black, and it seems like they're the ones that integrated, and also they also happen to be in cities with historically black populations, like Oakland, Cleveland, Chicago. Well, yeah, Chicago. I guess you could say both teams. If you follow the Great Migration, not to be a giant history nerd right now. No, we can. This is this is a place to be a giant history nerd. If you follow the Great Migration, right? Mm-hmm. So St. Louis most, too. Yeah. Most Black American baseball players come from the Southeast, mm-hmm. right? Think about it. You got your Alabama, where Florida, right? So. Then when you follow the path north, everybody breaks off. And if you go west, you're going to Oakland. So I believe our team, so to speak, are, like you said, in those cities. Like, I know a ton, a ton of Black people who are Braves fans, but they once liked Milwaukee, you know? Or the Cleveland fans like my grandparents, probably your grandparents, Absolutely. because they were the first team in the AL to have a black player. And so it had Larry and Satchel Page, you were the best black players on the planet at the time. So, right. I mean, so I mean, you go, you go where the heart is, and I think like those are, you know, Detroit. Yes. <laughs> like <laughs> those are places that on the Great Migration, if you if you draw a line from the south to the north. You'll be like, oh, that's where they landed. Oh, that's where they landed. That's that's why they like that team. And I don't think people look at it from that perspective at all. Mm-hmm. Those teams have such rich histories. Thank you for listening to the second episode of the Red Blood Green Baseball Podcast. Hosted and produced by me, Pat Lemson Jr. As a part of the Picture List Podcast Network. You can find me on Twitter at tangible underscore uno. S-T-A-N-G-I-B-L-E underscore U-N-O. And you can find Shakia Taylor on Twitter at Curly Fro. C-U-R-L-Y-F-R-O. I will also be putting this I will also be putting links to her work in the description. So thank you for listening. I appreciate it.